Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, I am really thrilled and excited to introduce to you a new colleague of mine who I have not met before, (laughs) Dr. Kyle Ganson. He is a brand new assistant professor at the Factor Imintosh Faculty of Social Work at University of Toronto. He did his PhD at Simmons University School of Social Work. He has over seven years of clinical practice experience working with adolescents and adults in mental health. And he has a great deal of experience working with individuals and families who experience mental health concerns with a particular interest in eating disorders. So this is so exciting for our podcast and for our listeners. So welcome, Kyle, to Toronto and to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be on both, in both. (laughs) (laughs) Great. I just gave a really quick Mm -hmm. summary from your bio. But I'm wondering if you could talk to the listeners, imagining you're in an elevator with somebody and you only have one or two floors. How do you synthesize what you do for a non-academic, maybe academics Mm -hmm. will also understand, but just for a non-academic audience, what do you do? Well, I'm a social worker by training, and so I look at and investigate, you know, the, the multi-levels of which eating disorders and muscle-enhancing behaviors, as well as, like, other high-risk, you know, behaviors such as, like, suicidal behavior and, like, uh, violence perpetration, victimization impacts men and boys particularly, but I think generally, like, the population at large. And if I have one more floor, I would say some way of impacting policy and sort of, like, a greater macro perspective, you know, with the research that I, that I do. That's amazing. And I'm, I really am going to get into more of this as we go on, especially muscle enhancing treatment <laughs> is really something I've never really ever mm-hmm. thought about or talked about. So sure. listeners, you're in for a real treat today. <laughs> so the next question where the listeners mm-hmm. will get to learn a bit more about you. You just moved to Toronto. Mm-hmm. I may in fact show up at your place with a time machine with a lot of space for physical Mm. distancing bring me back to the time and place where you thought i want to focus on people Mm. with either mental health or maybe specifically eating disorders Mm. where would we go in your in the time machine in the time machine is it's a possibility of going on multiple stops Sure. It's not a, a necessarily, yeah. it could be a stop overtime machine, but is there a, a specific moment that stands out? 
You know, I think, um, I think working with people, let's say being a social worker, I would go back to my actual undergrad. Um, and I sort of have a unique, maybe not unique, but I think of someone of unique aspect of how I got to social work, which is I have my bachelor's in fine arts and I was a photography major at the school of visual arts in New York city. Wow. And my, I love yeah, my New York. Ma- yeah, it's great. So my major focus of photography was portraiture. And most of what I did was follow people and sort of get to know people and, and build relationships with them in order to kind of document their lives and have them take me places or you know show me things that were particularly unique to them in order to tell their story essentially and these were you know they'd be friends they'd be sometimes they'd just be random people I'd meet on the street walking through New York City and so that was sort of like the start of just getting to know people and understand how people decide to live their lives from there when I graduated uh, I realized it's really hard to make a living in the art world mm. and wasn't really willing to do some of the things that I think other people were like maybe do you know different types of photography like commercial photography I wasn't really interested in that so I decided that something like social work would be a really good sort of bridge to kind of doing similar things, following people and kind of understanding who they are and helping them. And I think I've always had somewhat of a, a bleeding heart there. So, you know, just wanting to help help people and learn about them and understand how they live their lives. And then from there, you know, I just, I think my, my interest in social work and helping people was around mental health issues, you know, and particularly young people, I think I connected most with them. And in my, so then this is zooming forward to when I graduated from my MSW, you know, working at a day treatment center and I kind of started to look in other areas that I thought might be particularly interesting. Um, and eating disorder world was always sort of interesting in the complexity of the illness and the multi sort of systemic aspects of treatment and just like comorbidities and the complexity of these issues. And so I started working at an outpatient group for adolescent girls with eating disorders and just started to ask questions of myself and understanding of why, why were there no men here? <laughs> why were there no boys here? Why was it predominantly women? What was my place within the, within the field as a male? And just trying to understand, you know, what's going on. And, and that, of course, has just catapulted into a, a research interest in eating disorders among male, the male population. Wow, that's so interesting. I'm really glad we got to go to New York because I could imagine New York because Mm -hmm. I go there a few times a year, Mm -hmm. but maybe not this year with the whole COVID-19 situation. But I'm really, that's really fascinating because I think you must bring some sort of different perspective from Mm -hmm. even being an artist Mm -hmm. watching people. So I want to get more into what eating disorders look like for boys. Mm-hmm. So I think that that might be related to the first stigma question I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. which is why does stigma matter in mm-hmm. something like eating disorders? But your your description seems like all these girls are showing up for eating disorder treatment mm-hmm. right. and boys aren't. So does that... Right. What does stigma have to do with that and what's going on with boys? I think it's so complicated and complex and layered. And I've just, as I was thinking about preparing for this conversation, like how do you synthesize <laughs> and synthesize all of that? I think part of it is a stigma of uh, a stigma around a social understanding about what eating disorders are and who they impact. Hmm. Um, And I think that for males in particular, of course, a narrative in society, and I think that in society in general, but also I think going down to even just like one-on-one interactions with medical professionals or even psychologists, social workers, et cetera, um, teachers, nurses. So there's an understanding that sort of perpetuates many different professions that are on the front lines of helping people or screening kids or screening people that sort of stigmatize and socially create a narrative around eating disorders being one disorder that only impacts females or or predominantly impacts females, which then leaves 
not only males, but I think other, you know, people of different race ethnicities sort of on the sidelines of receiving treatment, receiving diagnoses, understanding the, you know, researching the illness within those populations, providing adequate treatment within those populations. It's the stigma and the social narrative that is attached to what we, how we understand and conceptualize eating disorders impacts everything from diagnosis to treatment, to long-term prognosis, to outcomes, etc. So let's break this down. You're saying that there is this social idea that the people who are going to be having eating disorders are girls. And so mm-hmm. they are the ones who maybe are getting diagnosis and treatment. Mm-hmm. And maybe that you're saying when you mention race and ethnicity, so mm-hmm. maybe even that the people right. who are going to get eating disorders are maybe white girls mm-hmm. and women. Right. And that's the understanding sort of, of it. That's the, that's the understanding. Right. Which is interesting, and I mm-hmm. want to get into what about the boys. Right. But my other question is, is stigma around bodies and mm. what is an expected body mm-hmm. supposed to look like? Yep. Part of the reason behind eating disorders, is it something about the way that we put in these unrealistic expectations of what a person's yeah. body should look like? So it's almost like... It's almost like stigma is a cause in some ways, maybe right. one of the causes. Absolutely. And then it's also hurts like people's access to getting mm-hmm. help or care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this, yeah, there, you could even say that there's a stigma around how we view and perceive bodies, what we see as acceptable bodies versus unacceptable bodies that further perpetuates the problem sort of down the line of, you know, to, front, to, to let's say males experiencing body image issues, you know, engaging in eating disorder behaviors, however, not being seen or, tr- or diagnosed or treated for those issues because we conceptualize and sort of see this uh, as a female issue. I also think another part of it is the sort of like idea of self-stigma that males experience, which then in some research has shown like predicts actually having an undiagnosed eating disorder. If you have higher levels of self-stigma, you're less likely to actually have a, a diagnosed eating disorder. So can you, um, can you break that down a little bit for the listener? Yeah. Imagine, imagine as a person. So maybe give a person as an example. Totally. I mean, if you, if you, if there's a, I mean, I'm doing a fake person. Yeah. Make make Um, a fake person. Make make a a fake person. So like John is engaging in, you know, binge eating and has a lot of body shame. Eating a lot. So what is binge eating? Yeah. Losing control of eating, overeating, kind of a loss of control around food. And it's sort of, uh, there's no like compensatory behavior that happens after that. So no like purging or throwing up or using laxatives or vomiting or anything like that. So mostly just around like overeating essentially. Okay. So if John is, you know, binge eating, if he feels like a a certain level of self-stigma, like this is a problem, why am I doing this? Um, This is bad. shame, maybe shame. shame, Right, yeah. My body doesn't look like... Like, you know, The Rock, who's posting these crazy workout videos on his Instagram. <laughs> I follow page. The Rock on Instagram. It's right. Very- <laughs> I mean, he's got, you know, three plus million views on these crazy workout videos and he looks like a, you know, an army figurine. Um, <laughs> so true. You know, if that stigma sort of gets internalized, then then John's not really going to be likely to go to his, his, and he feels depressed and anxious about it and, you know, sad about it, hopeless about it, can't control it. He's less likely to go to the doctor and say, hey, I think something's wrong with me. And so therefore the doctor is not necessarily going to know, oh, you know, John is waking up and at night and overeating and binge eating uh, multiple times a week, therefore not getting diagnosed, therefore not getting the treatment that he might need. So So that's, I think, the process that might, that occur, it might occur. You know, I'm realizing that there might be listeners, including myself, who don't know all the terminology. Mm -hmm. So binging is when you have uncontrollable eating and, and then 
Yeah. You, you mentioned it's also like often like an excessive amount of food, food that you wouldn't necessarily sit down and have a, you know, like, like a normal, a quote unquote normal portion size. And then maybe you could, because you mentioned yep. purging. So purging maybe you want to define Purging that could be sense. purging, like is, is a compensatory behavior. So somehow ridding, trying to rid the calories, rid the food. So that could be vomiting. It could be using laxatives. It could be excessive exercise. Um, so those are, those so are when you like, say compensatory behavior, you're meaning something we do uh, in response to yep. something else that we did. So if we right. binge, then we might, so if someone right. eats a whole bunch and they might, um, they might go and throw up, which would be, that would be like bulimia where you eat, binge, eat, and then, uh, throw up okay. in order to sort of get rid of the food that you've just eaten. And so what is this? you mentioned muscle, something about muscles. <laughs> muscle I'm so curious. <laughs> yeah. What is muscle? You have to, you have to talk to me, like, because I'm not an expert in this area. Yeah, what totally. is muscle enhancing behavior? Yeah, so myself and some colleagues are looking at like weight gain attempts, like by young boys and young women. It's prominent, not surprisingly, it's mostly among young boys and young adult men who are attempting to gain weight or physically alter their body by gaining more muscle. And so when we talked a little bit before about bodies, I mean, the common and sort of more traditional like norm and expectation for women is around leanness, uh, I'm sorry, thinness and sort of like, you know, not having many curves and being skinny, right? Um, whereas for males, it's more along the lines of having a lot of muscle, being really lean, mm-hmm. being really cut, having lots of definition. The Rock is a great example, a great example of that. And so the muscle enhancing behaviors is just that, is, is, is using different forms of over-exercising, you know, eating very specific meals, like very high protein, low carbohydrate diets, going through like bulk and cut cycles where you actually eat a lot of food or eat more food than usual in order to like bulk up but then switching very rapidly to a different type of diet, which is sort of trying to cut down and, and really trying to create more lean, lean muscle mass. So two, and, and two then, questions and, about that. Yeah. Is, does it involve like steroids? Yes. And That's also, what I was going to say next. Okay. Because yeah. I was going to so, say like, all of that sounds like w- the program they're going to give you at the gym. So yes. how do you know when that's problematic? And, it, and then is, is it like, you know, what's yes. the line? That's, and that's the age old, age old question, which is, when does it become a problem? And I think one of the reasons why my hunch is that it hasn't really, these behaviors haven't necessarily fall, fallen into like what we would traditionally say as like diagnostic eating disorder criteria is because we don't necessarily know 100% yet how do we define these things as problems. Whereas we can, we can know, we can define when someone has anorexia and is lost 20% of their weight or whatever or not eating you know, we can define that very easily that that's a problem. Whereas with muscle enhancing behaviors, a lot of these things are, are especially for boys and men, they're sync, they're, they're okay, right? Um, it's okay for a boy to follow the rock and want to have a muscle, muscle mass and go to the gym for many hours a day, um, even use things like protein supplements and protein powders and all types of different like supplements. What we've found though, is that some of sometimes, and in a recent study we just did, we found that over time, you actually are more likely to use things like anabolic steroids which are obviously much more harmful, much more dangerous for many different reasons. If you use some of these, like what we call legal performance enhancing substances, like protein powders and creatine and things like that. So it's hard to define when it becomes a problem when it doesn't. And I think that's part of the reason why these boys and men are not particularly getting diagnosed or treated with some sort of illness, because we just sort of see it as part of the male experience. Wow. So do you have any idea? So like, why are people, and does stigma vary? Based on, you mentioned anorexia, which is when you're not eating enough. Mm-hmm. 
Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm assuming there's a better definition, but um, just mm-hmm. to break sure. it down, is there a different stigma attached to say bulimia mm-hmm. where you eat and then you maybe throw up or binging or anorexia or mm-hmm. muscle dancing? It almost feels like they would get rewarded and not mm-hmm. stigmatized. Right, so which I'm then just... perpetuates the, the behaviors, right? And that's often very common in the eating disorder experience for people is that, you know, for males or females, their body might change. And if we see bodies as an, in a way where there's an acceptable body and an unacceptable body, if you do something that creates an acceptable body, you often get that positive reinforcement from family, peers. Wow, what are you doing? You must be eating. So, you know, it must be really good with your eating. You must be going to the gym all the time. You must be, what's your secret, right? So I think that does create a stigma and an expectation that you need to keep your body at a certain way which makes it harder to break those cycles and, of course, um, you know, get the help you might actually need. To answer your question directly, I, you know, off the top of my head, I don't know what the research says about the different diagnoses and levels of stigma. What we do know is that for men in particular, just experiencing an eating disorder is highly stigmatizing because it is so seen as a female issue. Of course, men also have difficulties having mental health issues, period. So whether that be anxiety, depression, suicidal behavior, etc. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is changing as you know, more like well-known and famous people are coming out and talking about mental health. Uh, among men particularly. Um, But I think there's like this like double stigma that happens of like suffering from a mental illness, but then also suffering from a traditionally quote unquote female illness, which then exacerbates the stigma, probably exacerbates the illness, exacerbates Mm -hmm. the lack of diagnosis, lack of treatment, because they're not going to get the help they might need or, or naming that they have a problem. So let's talk about John. Our Sorry super, to all the Johns out there. <laughs> our superhero today. Right, right. So, Because my next question is, what does stigma look like? So you gave mm-hmm. a really good example of John wakes up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and eats uh, like a lot of food, mm-hmm. uh, binging, and then feels ashamed mm-hmm. and doesn't want to talk to anybody about it. What would happen? Like, can you give us some examples of like what stigma looks like if John mm-hmm. was going to talk to a friend or a family mm-hmm. or a healthcare provider? What does mm-hmm. stigma look like when it's about um, either controlling your eating or not controlling your eating in ways mm-hmm. that are, I guess, mm-hmm. acceptable? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. I think that sometimes I think men experience where they might go and talk to a friend or they might go and talk to a healthcare provider. And those people don't actually know how to validate or see the experience through a lens of eating disorder. And so like a healthcare provider might not even think to screen for something like an eating disorder because of the stigma attached to it. And that's, that's multi-layered because of maybe lack of training for the providers in many different ways. So I think that's one thing that could happen. Um, I think and then that obviously could perpetu- perpetuate more stigma because if you're not able to speak to people, you might go more inward, you might feel more depressed, which then maybe perpetuates the behaviors as well. So yeah, I think this, the stigma can be really overwhelming because most men, I think don't, or many men don't know how to talk about mental illness, period. And they also don't know how to they're not socialized to talk about their feelings and their internal thoughts as much as maybe women are in a more traditional sense. Are there similar sort of root causes behind this? You know, I'm not saying you you need to answer this. Maybe you don't know, but is there a similar sort of root causes of Mm. eating disorders between different genders or is there like, do boys 
have the same sort of background who engage in um, maybe disordered eating than girls or yeah. is their stories the same or do they differ? I think in many ways they are, you know, very similar and that they're multi-layered. They, they happen over time. They're not like, a, you know, necessarily a, like I wake up the next day and I decide that I'm going to restrict my food or I'm going to decide that I'm going to start to use steroids. Um, you know, I think it's a, a process that occurs through genetic predisposition through, you know, social relationships, through transitions in life, through inability to cope and manage emotions, manage thoughts. So I think it is multifaceted in that way. I will say that I think there are aspects, you know, eating disorders often co-occur with many other mental illness, or at least maybe one, let's say. And I think that something that can occur is that the comorbidities themselves exacerbate the stigma. I mean, if you think about one of my dissertation papers was on sexual assault and eating disorders among college men. And we know that men are often way less likely to report any type of sexual assault that might occur to them because uh, of stigma attached to that as well. Also, if, you, if you're a male who has experienced a sexual assault um, or even sexual abuse, which then leads to maybe eating disorder behaviors, which is also stigmatized, that sort of those comorbidities can compound on each other. Same thing with like suicidality or substance use, you know, there's, there's stigma attached to those issues in and of themselves. So then you expand that and include, you know, the, the eating disorder experience and the eating disorder symptoms. And I think that that also, you know, uh, perpetuates and, and compounds all the stigma that men might experience. So that's so interesting. So what you're saying is that like a comorbidity is when two social or, or health or. problems mm -hmm. happen at the same time. Correct. And so what we might be seeing with boys and men with eating disorders is that they also have possible histories mm -hmm. of depression or mm -hmm. suicidality or sexual assault. And yeah. each one of those is also stigmatized. So yeah. there's this whole basket of stigma mm -hmm. right. that, that we need to start untangling as well as our own expectations of what men men's eating is like. I don't mm -hmm. think, I don't know me, I'm not thinking about the way men eat very often. I think right. women, it's much maybe more in, mm -hmm. in the media, women's issues with eating, but I don't necessarily, maybe it is there with men and I'm just not noticing it because I'm a woman, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. but I do know that there is a lot of pressure for mm -hmm. men to be fit. And I think, yeah. yes, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, it's like a, you know, a basket that needs to be unwoven in many ways. I don't think there is, you can't, I think you can't really look specifically at eating disorders and say, oh, like they happen in this silo because I like many mental illness, not just eating disorders, but I think in many ways, it's so complex. There's so many layers there. I think for men in particular, and again, I don't necessarily mean to only say men, I think it happens to women also and, and gender and sexual minorities as well. But there's just a lot of layers there that need to be untied. And each layer has probably some level of stigma attached to it, um, which then obviously compounds other aspects of stigma. I'm learning so much in this. This is amazing. <laughs> I so, I have, so I have one more stigma question before yeah. we get to the wild card questions. Okay, good. I like and wild cards. this is the, what did you say you, you want? I like wild cards. Okay, good. All right, this question, I want you to think about the listeners who may mm. be having various different mm. places in the world of where mm. they work and what they do. But yeah. for all of us here, how do we reduce stigma around mm. eating disorders? Like mm. what, are, what are some things that I can do? And, mm. you know, all the folks listening, what are mm. things we can do to reduce the stigma? Mm -hmm. It's funny, you know, I think a lot about that question from a health perspective and like a clinical perspective. I don't necessarily think about it as like, you know, just 
anybody on the street, let's say. Well, you can I, do both. You can do something for the healthcare workers, okay. but then something for the rest of society who, yeah. who participates probably in mm-hmm. creating unrealistic body expectations or sure. in not thinking about men as being vulnerable to these yep. messages about our bodies. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so for the health professions, let's say, I think in general, more training needs to be done around eating disorders, period. And then I think also the male experience around eating disorders and what that might look like, uh, how it might be different, but also then how it might be similar to what we would traditionally think of as an eating disorder diagnosis. So I think that's probably like the most important aspects of the health professions is just more knowledge, more training. In addition to that, also creating specific guidelines, um, which my colleagues and I are starting to work on, which is creating actual treatment guidelines that are specific towards the male experience and how do we how do we assess, how do we treat this population in its own unique way. So that would be, I think, the most maybe like health aspect. And I imagine, I imagine that the healthcare workers themselves have to do some reflection on the way that we have all been raised Mm -hmm. in a society that has a particular view of what an ideal body is for a man and and for a woman. (laughs) And that was what I was going to say, I think would be for the general public and the general general listener, quote unquote, general listener would be to really assess Everybody has a body image. Everybody has a body to some capacity or another. And so how do you engage in the world in your own body? How do you, what expectations do you put on other people about their body, male, female, otherwise, and just sort of challenging any preconceived notions of what is an okay body and what is a not okay body. And when do you see images on social media or the TV or, you know, whatever, where it's promoting a, type, a certain body type, which then might create issues or, or sort of stereotypes. When is body shaming happening? You know, when do you, when do you hear people say, oh, that, that person looks like they gained a little bit of weight or wow, that person looks really good because of their X, Y, and Z body type, or they lost a bunch of weight in the past year or something like that, or they changed their body in a certain way. So I think really being conscious of con- and cognizant of those types of conversations and, and thoughts and potentially trying to change them or alter them or challenge their friends or challenge their family or not engage in those types of dialogues. Absolutely. Like I've heard so many people, myself mm-hmm. included, being like, oh my gosh, the COVID 15, right. Quarantine the COVID 15, right. 20, like yep. we're all sitting at home and yeah. the gyms are closed. And it, yes. it's really hard. Like totally. even I, I experience, like I experienced like being, wow, I put on weight in quarantine mm-hmm. and my yep. gym's closed and yep. it's kind of stressful and to not, right. and to be like, well, is everybody really a beach body? Like, right. you know, I want to believe that, but it's yep the pressure and mm-hmm. um, disappointment sometimes you feel if you can't make yep. these social expectations. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny. Yeah. I think um, there has been some more writing about the quarantines and COVID and how that's, ex- you know, exacerbating certain eating disorder behaviors or even just general pe- people's concerns about weight, et cetera, like you're mentioning. So yeah, this is kind of a weird time for that, that to be happening. So we're all, we all need to play a role in, in accepting ourselves and yeah. each other and be more, be more gentle, I think, with ourselves in general. So maybe yes. COVID, you know, if there's like silver lining, it can be like, yeah. oh, we're all, we're all just right. moving around the best we can right now. Best we can right now and trying to stay healthy and take care of ourselves. I and mean, I think there's something interesting about that. I mean, like even people sign off like on their emails or whatever, like stay healthy, stay safe. I mean, I think that can be expanded to include how we take care of ourselves outside of like not getting sick 
from with COVID or whatever. I think just generally, how do you take care of yourself and stay healthy from a mental space, from a judgment space of self and others, from a stigma space, things like that. This has been awesome. Really helping me reflect on on all the ways that I could uh, change. So we're going to go into the wild card questions. So the listeners and my, including myself, can get to know you better. Sure. Kyle, Mm -hmm. what are you binging on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, whatever it is you watch? Uh, (laughs) uh, Well, we don't watch a lot of newer TV as much as we watch a lot of older TV, but a staple in our household is How I Met Your Mother. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's so funny. Which we love that show and it's our number one go-to as far as just, you know, lounging and wanting to watch episode after episode. But I'm a huge fan of miniseries, so I will pretty much watch any new release from Netflix or Hulu, um, any type of miniseries that comes out. Um, What's a miniseries? Like, does it have a certain number of episodes or just like- uh, Yeah, they're like the episodes that are like like eight episodes or whatever. Okay. Um, so you so like, like you a time know, limited, time limited. <laughs> right, right. So like, I don't know if you saw Sharp Objects, I think that was on Netflix, um, was really good. What else? Uh, Maniac is on uh, Netflix, which is a very like sci-fi kind of like funky scientific kind of medical show. It's called Maniac. It's got uh, Jonah Hill in it and a couple other pretty well-known people. That's a good one I'd recommend. Uh, My partner and I have different feelings about series. So we like things where you can just watch one-off episodes like Queer Eye or like RuPaul. I mean, you're kind of following yeah. RuPaul, but it right. doesn't feel like you need to watch episode after episode, you know? Totally. Like, yes. But we love yes. Shit's Creek, and that's over. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we watched We did Creek. watch a little bit of that. We didn't get into it as much as we would have hoped, but it, we heard it, good it, things about it. Yeah, it took me like probably the first season, and then I was like 100% hooked. Right. Um, yeah. The great Canadian baking show, we really like yeah. that. We're like, yeah. this is like, <laughs> anyways. I mean, I look at some of your mini series because I like it when when I know that there's an ending, like there's yeah. like, a certain number. Yeah, yeah. The second question is, you can go anywhere in the world. <laughs> Imagine there's no COVID. Yeah, right. <laughs> to have brunch mm. with anybody. Oh my gosh. Anybody Dead or alive? Else. Dead or alive. Where would you go? Who would you take? Oh man, I was not prepared for this question. <laughs> <laughs> I prepared for all the others. Yes. Um, That's why they're called the wild cards. The wild if you were cards. prepared, it'd be oh boring. I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Uh, people that I would go. And, so I'm just trying to think of the person first. I, I mean, I think like, I would love to just like chat with Barack Obama. I think that would be a, a, a great conversation, such a smart and insightful person who I think did really great things. So, um, yeah, and just experienced awesome. a really unique, a unique time in like American history. So, and the history around the world too. So um, I think, you know, talking with him would be pretty Obama, impressive. we'd love you to come on yeah. as a guest. <laughs> yeah. We're going to tag I will, you. I will also join that, that episode if he gets on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Obama, we would love to co-host yeah. you right. for a special podcast. Yes, yes exactly. Where, right. where would you like to go with? with My that? dream place is I really want to go to Iceland. I have never been. Nice. Um, I, I've, actually, I should say that I have been, but it was a layover to get to Europe. So I didn't leave the airport. Okay. Um, but it is very high. It's my number one place. I want to go. I want to drive around the island. I it is amazing. Camp. It's supposed to be amazing. So, I've been there yeah. twice. Once oh, in the winter. Right. 
Uh, we went in the summer and it was awesome. So I recommend you, Barack Obama, <laughs> maybe because it's brunch that includes yes. beverages. Right. So there is sparkling wine or you can right. also get a non-alcoholic sparkling there wine you go. Yep. in the Blue Lagoon. Okay, so you could exactly. go to oh the Blue God. Lagoon. It's like hot springs, hang oh. out, get some... Yeah, some nice. Breakfast. I think Obama would be down for just relaxing in Iceland too. So yeah. maybe he'll take me up on it. It's a really nice. Once you get off the plane, you can actually go straight there, yep. <laughs> and it's like a yep. really nice way to unwind. I'm. So, I like it. I'm on okay. board. We're calling. Um, we're calling this in to the we're podcast. Calling it in. Perfect. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the last question I have for the wildcard question: mm-hmm. What is a piece of advice that has mm. helped you that you'd like to share with the listeners? Oh man. Piece of advice, or um, wisdom, or wisdom, something, something yeah. along the way. I think uh, I don't have like a direct quote per se from like one person or the other, but I think um, my sort of like piece of wisdom that I think has been uh, like shared with me through my mother and close family and good friends has just been you know like life is full of ups and downs and there's no like straight trajectory of which things go, um, and so just kind of be prepared to ride the waves and mm. go backwards and go forwards and go up and go down and go sideways. And yeah, you know, you're going to get to the end point that you need to get to, or you want to get to, or, and try not to be too impatient and just let it kind of arrive when you're ready for it. So that would be my, I love that wisdom. Yeah. I also love the ocean. Like I feel, mm-hmm. I mean, I love the water. There's so much to learn just by watching the waves totally. coming in and out and the sand yeah. Yeah. It's always doing its own thing and move, receding yeah. and, Totally. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That would be that. And I think the other thing too, is like, sometimes you just need to zoom out and like, think about the big picture, think about time and space, <laughs> which yeah. can be overwhelming, but I also think can be very perspective taking. So I think that would be another piece of wisdom. Yeah. It's this interesting balance between living right in the moment and also zooming out and being like, right. okay, in the grand yep. scheme of thing, right. things, is this yep. going to be something I remember in five years? You know? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, those would be my two pieces of advice. Thank you so much. It's been yeah. such a pleasure to have you on here. And I'll link the listeners to some of your articles and Great. places they can follow you on Twitter and things awesome. like that. Sweet. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, what I have to tell you? If you want to listen, what I have to tell you? Mm-hmm.